Welcome to the Kelman Wellness Series, where Dr. Raphael Kelman, founder of Microbiome Medicine, medical director of the Kelman Wellness Center in New York, and best-selling author of The Microbiome Diet and The Microbiome Breakthrough, talks with health experts about the power of the microbiome and its impact on so many areas of health, disease prevention, and longevity. Dr. Stephen Gudry is a cardiologist, uh, a heart surgeon, medical researcher, and author. Uh, His mission is to improve health, happiness, and longevity, the unique vision of human nutrition. During his 40-year career in medicine, he performed countless pediatric heart transplants, developed patented life-saving medical technology, and published over 300 articles and book chapters on his research. In 2008, his best-selling book, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, focused on diet and nutrition as a way to help people avoid surgery. He currently operates his private practice at the Center for Restorative Medicine with offices in both Palm Springs and Santa Barbara. And I know there's a lot more in your bio, but Dr. Gundry, let's stop over here just to get started. First of all, it's fascinating that you've been in a sort of a different field, although of course there's you know connections between what you were in and what you're doing now. So I'm, I'm curious how you made the transition and how you actually see the combination, how, how the two are so related. I actually uh, was an undergraduate at Yale back in the dark ages when we could design our own major. And I uh, chose a major that I could uh, prove that by manipulating a great ape's environment and food supply that you could uh, arrive at a human being. And I actually uh, did that major and uh, got an honors for it, defended my thesis, and then kind of gave it to my parents and went on to become a very famous heart surgeon. And then about 20 years ago, I was confronted with a 48-year-old gentleman from Miami who, in six months' time, cleaned out uh, 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries, which were considered to be inoperable, uh, with uh, food, with a diet, and taking a bunch of supplements from a health food store. And I was uh, so impressed that I I got out my uh, thesis from Yale and started putting myself on that program and every patient that I operated on. And lo and behold, uh, the The principles uh, have actually stood the test of time. After a year of doing this at Loma Linda as chairman of cardiothoracic surgery there, I actually uh, quit my job and set up an institute in Palm Springs uh, and subsequently in Santa Barbara where every three months I would ask people to come in and let me get about 20 tubes of blood on them that Medicare insurance would pay for sophisticated blood tests and ask them to alter food choices and alter supplements that they could buy at Costco or Trader Joe's. There wasn't an Amazon back then. And I started publishing my results uh, at the American Heart Association. And it, you know, it's resulted in four New York Times bestsellers, the most famous of which I guess is the plant paradox. But most recently, the longevity paradox just came out and also was a New York Times bestseller. So what is uh, unique about this diet? What, what's the you know, bottom line? What's the theme? Now, the bottom line is that there are uh, plant proteins, which are part of the defense system of the plant to keep itself from being eaten or keeping its babies, its seeds from being eaten, which are called lectins. 
and lectins are sometimes called sticky proteins. Uh, almost every one of us in medicine know that lectins were discovered in the late 1800s as a way of blood typing. Uh, and lectins like to stick to particular sugar molecules. And those sugar molecules line our intestinal tract, they line our joints, they line the space between our nerves, they actually line all the lining of our blood vessels, and they create uh, inflammation, or you can prove, as Dr. Fasano from Johns Hopkins proved, that one particular lectin, gluten, is very good at causing le leaky gut, as are multiple other lectins. So that's what intrigued me, how these things got into our diet and taking them away uh, could actually cure a lot of the diseases that we think are uh, normal parts of aging. So when you say lectins, what kind of foods contain lectins? All plants contain lectins, and we actually have lectins in us as a communication system. But the ones that are the highest and the troublesome uh, area are all grains have lectins except for sorghum and millet which don't uh, all beans and pulses and lentils have lectins uh, the nightshade family potatoes eggplant tomatoes uh, goji berries and peppers have lectins and then there are two nuts that aren't nuts peanuts are a legume uh, which have some really nasty lectins, and cashews aren't a nut at all. They're a seed that uh, has a very nasty lectin. So that's uh, kind of the examples of the foods I started taking away from people. What would be the top foods? Would it be grains and then beans and lentils? Or we now have some sophisticated testing that we can see which of these particular lectins someone may be more susceptible to. I mean, there's even a, a lectin in spinach that may be problematic in some of my patients that we're just beginning to recognize. The, the other thing that I noticed and other people have noticed is that as people were started start being told to eat whole grains, uh, particularly whole wheat, a really troublesome lectin called wheat germ agglutinin, yeah. which is removed with normal processing of wheat, uh, was reintroduced back into people's diets. And uh, it's maybe, the, it's far worse than gluten itself. So now you mentioned that it combines with a certain molecule um, in the blood or in the, even in the joints. What is that molecule? Well, so they're looking for a particular sugar molecules, primarily uh, sialic acid. And there are, um, for instance, believe it or not, lectins like to bind to glucosamine. And people take glucosamine and chondroitin sulfite and MSM, all of which are sugar molecules that lectins are attracted to. And People think that they're doing something magical in their joints by taking these compounds, but when in fact what you're doing is binding lectins that would otherwise get into your system and then bind in your joints. And I think that's uh, so the marvelous, you know, anti arthritis uh, supplement that everybody takes is a lectin binder, and that's actually how it works. 
And what about there's a, you know, people should know about glycated uh, proteins, which play a major role in the development of heart disease and, and many other diseases. So if you could explain the relationship between the lectins and glycated uh, proteins, et cetera. Well, you know, the, the entire glycan sugar system is, uh, there's a book sitting on my desk that's about 400 pages that we could review how glycans may be incredibly important in the development of, among other things, coronary disease. But glycolated proteins can serve not only as a stiffener on the surface of our blood vessels, and we're actually able to measure flexibility in blood vessels, uh, removing lectins from people's diet. I've published two papers in circulation about this, that we can introduce uh, lectins into a person's diet, notice that the stiffness of their blood vessels increases, and then remove them and show that the stiffness resolves after a few months. So, you know, it isn't, it isn't conjecture, it isn't, you know, pseudoscience. This is, you know, human uh, subjects and reported in the American Heart Association Journal. Are there supplements that you recommend uh, for your patients that can improve the bottom line, improving the gut and improving the the microbiome and and, and everything downstream from there? So much of what I actually ask people to do is is what I tell them not to eat is far more important than what I tell them to eat. But there are uh, supplements that I think every human being should take that most people are deficient in. Number one is vitamin D3. Uh, I About 70% of my practice is now autoimmune patients. And to a person, almost everyone with an autoimmune disease, or with cancer for that matter, has a very, very low vitamin D level. And what uh, people don't know is that vitamin D is actually essential to tell the stem cells that line the wall of our gut to grow and divide and to replace damaged enterocytes, the cells that lie in our intestinal tract. And so I try uh, to get my patients' vitamin D levels up to 100 to 120 nanograms per ml. Yeah, uh, I have yet to see vitamin D toxicity. Um, I, I've run my vitamin D greater than 120 for the last 15 years now, and I'm not dead yet. Uh, as, I showed it, as I showed in the longevity paradox, that people who have the highest levels of vitamin D have the longest telomeres and people who have the lowest levels of vitamin D have the shortest telomeres. So if you like the telomere theory of aging, and it's certainly one of them, why wouldn't I want a high vitamin D level? Uh, and vitamin D is really essential for uh, kind of keeping the integrity of our gut wall. In terms of um, uh, autoimmune disorders, is it are you treating autoimmune disorders in a similar way, mostly with dietary changes and certain supplements and yes. is that the same methodology they use yeah we we started this um because i was uh the one of the pioneers in infant pediatric heart transplantation 
and the pioneer in xenotransplantation, where we would transplant a, a pig, for instance, into a baboon, uh, I became a transplant immunologist looking at how the immune system reacts to a foreign substance and suppressing the immune system, tricking it into accepting it. And so when my first book years ago came out, uh, Dr. Gunner's Diet Evolution, people with autoimmune disease started showing up in my office and they'd say, what do you know about autoimmune disease? And I say, absolutely nothing. But I know a whole lot about the immune system. And if you want to play, let's play because the immune system is looking for something. And it's called molecular mimicry. And this the idea that lectins could mimic proteins within our body and cause an autoimmune attack um, was, was actually first proposed by Lauren Cordain of the paleo diet. And it's since that time uh, been proven to be correct that uh, autoimmunity is stimulated by similar proteins that look similar enough to our own proteins that our immune system attacks uh, are similar proteins. And it's called molecular mimicry. So last year, I published a paper in circulation of 102 patients with biomarker-proven autoimmune disease, like lupus, like rheumatoid arthritis, like Sjogren's syndrome, like Hashimoto's, thyroiditis, who in six months' time following our program, uh, 95 out of 102, or 94%, were in remission or cured and off of all immunosuppressant drugs. So, you know, that's a pretty good rate. And that's just by removing all the lectins. Correct. Yes. And giving them vitamin D and giving them actually fish oil. And yeah, just removing the lectins. And we also proved that people who inadvertently or on purpose, once they were cured, reintroduced lectins, that their disease process came back. And then when we removed them again, uh, the, the d disease went away, went into remission. Hmm. That's fascinating. And, and what, what's, what about the microbiome? What's it, its effects on the microbiome? Is there any research to show that lectins adversely affect bacteria of the microbiome? Here's what I think has been happening. And I, and I talk about this in all my books, and I call them the seven deadly disruptors. Our microbiome was actually one, and still is, one of our main defense systems against plant lectins. Uh, the microbiome actually likes eating plant lectins. Believe it or not, there is actually a bug that enjoys eating gluten. Uh, and it's interesting because if you stop eating gluten, this bug leaves and you have less of a defense against gluten. But what's happened to us in the last 50 years is uh, just a couple of things I'll mention. First of all, broad-spectrum antibiotics. Uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics were introduced in the mid-1970s. They were miracle drugs because we could shotgun everyone and not know the bug. What we didn't know is it also depleted and killed off our microbiome. We also give broad-spectrum antibiotics to the animals we eat. Uh, chickens, beef, pork, and just eating those animals kill off our microbiome. Uh, we now know that, of course, antibiotics are in most of our water supplies. So 24 hours a day, we're actively killing off our microbiome. But what's really 
happened that's really, really scary is, is that now uh, for 50 years, we've had glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. And glyphosate is, was patented uh, by Monsanto as a antibiotic. It was not patented as an herbicide, weed killer. And if you look at the literature, glyphosate actually works via what's called the shikimate pathway. I love that word. And we, we humans don't use the shikimate pathway, but our bacteria use the shikimate pathway, just like plants. So inadvertently, we've actually destroyed our microbiome because glyphosate is, is in everything. If you saw recently in 35 oat products, uh, it was found in all the oat products tested. Recently, uh, uh, vegan protein powders, including organic vegan protein powders, all have glyphosate in them. As I talk about- Even organic? Even organic, organic. Foods have- Yeah, even organic, because what's happened is it is sprayed in the air and it comes across fields. In fact, multiple California organic wines have glyphosate in them. So this stuff is ubiquitous. In fact, uh, about 93% of pregnant women have glyphosate in their urine and their breast milk. Incredible. So we have actually just absolutely decimated our microbiome, which was one of the major defense systems against lectins. And I think people kind of mishear me. Yes, lectins are pretty pretty bad, but we've had, you know, a pretty doggone good check and balance against plants for most of our, you know, most of our time here on earth. But in the last 50 years, that that balance has just been decimated by these disruptors. So which came first, the chicken or the egg here? Because it sounds like if you would have, and I see this, by the way, clinically, is that if your microbiome is healthy, you could tolerate the lectins a lot better, and I Correct. don't see negative reactions when, when the microbiome is healthy. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, when, when we look at uh, blue zones, and by the way, I'm actually the only uh, nutritionist who has ever spent most of his career in a blue zone, Loma Linda. Um, when you look at the blue zones, they, in general, uh, don't live in places where you know animals are fed antibiotics. They're not given antibiotics every time they sneeze, and they have and they have no glyphosate. So um, yeah, I think we have a pretty doggone good check and balance uh, as long as we have a healthy microbiome. Let's talk about your approach to improving the microbiome, and then tell us what your thoughts are about being able to tolerate some of the lectins once you improve your microbiome. One of the things I ask everyone to do is at all costs, uh, whatever you're going to eat, please, please eat organic. And if you're, if you're going to eat animals, I'd much you prefer uh, eating wild fish and wild shellfish. And we probably don't have time to go into why I'd like people to do that. But we have to get glyphosate and antibiotics out of people. And we actually have a, an interesting reserve of our microbiome. And they're, they're at the base of the crypts that line our intestines. And there are trillions of crypts. And at the base of these crypts, there is a deposit 
of the essential microbiome along with the stem cells that repopulate our microvilli. And they're there, but they're basically in hiding. What I like people to do, I'm probiotics, living bacteria, are not as important as I think people realize if for no other reason the vast majority of probiotics are not native bacteria. They're not our own species. And yes, they'll go on vacation in our gut for a couple of weeks and then they'll leave. And there's some benefits to doing that. But what's really important is prebiotics. The if you will, the, the fertilizer and the water that the, our good bugs need to eat. Exactly. I say the exact same thing, exact same thing. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, you know, people are swallowing probiotics right and left, but I use the example laughingly out here in Palm Springs where it's pretty hot and dry in the summer. And so if we think about probiotics as grass seed, if I sell somebody some grass seed, uh, and they'll come back a month later and say, you you sold me, sold me bad grass seed. It didn't grow. And I said, well, what'd you do? And they said, well, you know, we sprinkled it out here in the sand. And I said, well, did you water it? No. Did you fertilize it? No. <laughs> well, what'd you expect? And so what we, what we have to do is give these guys what they like to eat. And it's actually, you know, well known, well documented what they like to eat. What types of prebiotics do you, do you suggest, do you recommend? So I'm, I'm a huge fan of inulin as a prebiotic. And inulin is present in the chicory family. Uh, I think it's very interesting that an Italian salad called tricolori salad has two inulin-containing plants, radicchio and Belgian endive. And it also has a uh, cruciferous vegetable, arugula. And you got to say, isn't that interesting that you know one of the most popular salads in Italy and actually in the south of France is heavily inulin containing. Also, Jerusalem artichokes are a great source of inulin. Artichoke hearts are a great source of inulin. Or you can get inulin in capsules. You can get it in powder form. It has a slightly sweet taste. Uh, so the more chicory and inulin I can get in people, the better. So you said arugula? Radicchio, you know, the Italian. Radicchio, sure. Yeah, and uh, Belgian endive. Right. And frisee. That's right. And, right. and chicory. So if I can get that into people, uh, we see a lot of really great stuff happening. The other thing, if you look at, for instance, the, the Okinawans and the Catavans, um, they both use a lot of tuberous plants, like a purple sweet potato or taro root. And I think we, we neglect uh, getting yams and sweet potatoes into people's diet, which have some fantastic, you know, resistant starches that these bugs love. In fact, I just had a purple sweet potato last night, as a matter of fact. And what about bloating? I mean, you know, a lot of people complain of bloating, and and that's potentially one of the negative effects of too much inulin. How do you address that? What I tell people is, yes, uh, the bloating is actually the good bugs saying, thank you so much. This is the best stuff we've ever had. And I'd like to thank you by telling you I'm going to produce a lot of gas. Now, in some cultures, believe it or not, 
it is a sign of respect for the cook to fart at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> what happens, though, is this calms down over, over a period of a month or so and just becomes, uh, and if I can get people to start slow and tell them, yeah, this is probably what you're going to expect, and it's actually a good sign, not a bad sign, that we'll get to where we want to be. There, there are prebiotics that um, are much less likely to, to cause bloating. Uh, for example, apple pectin, uh, yes. a prebiotic called XOS. Well, what are your thoughts? Uh, in, are you so stuck on inulin or no. would you consider some of these other prebiotics? No, I use apple pectin. I use ground flax seeds. Uh, I actually love modified citrus pectin. Uh, I gave gave a paper a few years ago that modified citrus pectin is a great way to change your microbiome from a from a unfavorable you know obesogenic microbiome to a slim microbiome so i'm actually a big fan of modified citrus pectin and apple pectin i also like glucomannan interesting so how did you stumble upon uh, modified citrus pectin as a potential uh, good prebiotic? Uh, great question. I, uh, we measure Galactin-3 on all of our patients, and Galactin-3 is, is said to be a marker of renal dysfunction and cardiac dysfunction, but there was uh, an interesting paper showing that modified cit citrus pectin lowered Galactin-3 levels, and they didn't propose a mechanism. But I was at a microbiota meeting in Paris a few years ago where uh, there was some fascinating papers that th the kidney has olfactory nerves, just like our nose. And the, the kidney can actually, for lack of a better word, smell uh, farts from the microbiome. And if the microbiome is a, a bad microbiome, then the kidney actually turns on the renin-angiotensin system and tightens blood vessels. And so I, I put three and three together and hopefully got six and said, I think modified citrus pectin is working by changing the gut microbiome. So that's what we did in, uh, oh gosh, I think it was 300 patients and found that in fact, uh, Galactin-3 levels fell in, in all of these patients back to normal. They had elevated Galactin. I think, you know, if, if someone would ask, uh, what causes this health issue and what causes that health issue? And if one would just guess or say microbiome, probably 80% of the time they'll be right. It's such a, an intimate, intricate, uh, interconnectedness between health and the health of a microbiome. Isn't that fascinating? From a evolutionary perspective, do you have some insight about that? Why it's such a profound connection? Well, it's interesting, uh, and I reference a paper in The Plant Paradox that one of the interesting findings um, is that our microbiome is distinct from other great apes microbiome. And this distinction may actually be the reason we're not a great ape and we're human. It's because of the constituents of our microbiome are different enough from great apes that you could actually tell 
what's a proto-human and a human from a great ape just by looking at the microbiome in fossilized fuels stool samples. And now because, you know, you can just do RNA and DNA uh, off of these fossils that people have been able to now detect the difference in microbiome. So it may be that, you know, bugs made us human. And, and, and certainly, you know, Hippocrates said 2,500 years ago that all disease begins in the gut. And uh, boy, was, was he prescient. I mean, it's amazing. I'm, I'm not sure if he appreciated the fa- or, or knew or understood no. the role of bacteria. No, he didn't know that. Uh, I don't think that he, yeah, he didn't know that or couldn't even guess that. But um, what, what's so profound is that without bacteria, there would be no life on Earth. And it kind of makes sense that there would be no life within us or healthy life within us if our bacteria are not healthy. I mean, it's, it's such an obvious um, uh, point that it's surprising that the medical profession hasn't yet really, really appreciated that. No, there's an argument uh, that bacteria invented animals uh to you know live on earth and i i tell my patients that we're just a condominium for you know bugs and you know the more the more we keep them happy the the more you know they spruce up the place and you know keep us happy so i i think it's a two-way street yeah but but you know they came first i think it's such hubris when, when people say wow look you know, we're bacteria is just like us. You know, they produce you know neurotransmitters, and we do, but it's really the opposite. Correct. You know, we're just like the microbiome. They came way before us, and they're they're like the prototype um, organic stuff of life. You know, the bacteria of li- bacteria, which is the progenitor cell of all cells. So I think um, it's just incredible. It's power, bacteria's power, both in nature and within us. And I think this is the reason why more and more studies are coming out to show the profound um, connection between um, the microbiome and virtually um, every disease and health condition that they study it with. Correct. So it's it's really a, re- really a revolution. How else would you um, harness the power of bacteria uh, to really make changes in, in one's life and to help people overcome diseases. Is there, are there other ways that, you know, other than removing lectins? I mean, these are profound ways and really, you know, getting your vitamin D to extremely high levels. What else do you suggest could be done to really change the microbiome? Well, again, the more, the more we can get, uh, glyphosate away from people, the more we can convince people that antibiotics are useful for, you know, life-threatening emergencies, but uh, don't take them when you have a sniffle like happens. Uh, I mean, one of the most profound papers recently was uh, looking at autistic children and giving them uh, fecal uh, transplants, oral fecal uh, transplants, and the scientists did an amazing job of it, but these kids' autism symptoms reduced by fifty percent, and the the effect has stayed now for two years. And so, you know, it just it just really demonstrates the the power that the microbiome has on on you know on everything, including how our brain works. 
there's more and more evidence that you know this massive amount of anxiety and depression I think we are finding, but we're going to find with each passing month, that an altered microbiome uh, and the uh, neurotransmitters that they they produce may be behind this, you know, massive increase in depression and anxiety we see. Sure, and also the inflammation that the microbiome is igniting. Oh yeah an unhealthy microbiome, which has a profound effect on, on brain function. So, you know, one of my great challenges and the thing that I'm focusing on clinically is, you know, how could we really bolster and really change the microbiome? It gets so entrenched in, a, in its habits. Mm -hmm. We see just, you know, the, when, when we do fecal transplants, we see big changes. But what else could we do? And at least what direction do you think we should be looking at to see these big, big, you know, quantum leaps in um, in the in the status of the microbiome. Well, I think, any, any yeah, well, I think one of the things we we should learn from uh, the great work that's been done looking at hunter gatherers and the most and Jeff Leach's work with the Hansas is a really great example. You know, the Hansas eat uh, seasonally, and their microbiome changes dramatically seasonally because of what they eat from season to season. And if you look at the typical microbiome of a Westerner, particularly a city-dwelling Westerner, our microbiome stays the same uh, day after day. And I think we should probably realize that the more you know, diversity, the more change that we have in that microbiome, sure. I think the more our immune system actually gets educated. Absolutely. I think that's a key word, educated. Yeah. The microbiome teaches the immune system. I mean, that's literally. Exactly. That's what the research actually states, that yeah. it educates yeah. our immune system, which is incredible. And it certainly needs a good education. Because <laughs> it, it, it could, I mean, it has the power to, I always tell this to my patients, to burn down a building. It, it's so powerful. Um, I and mean, we see that when you could harness, um, you know, bacteria, when the immune system in the right way, um, and sometimes via an improved microbiome, it could heal cancer. There's been independent, oh, yeah. you know, small studies, yeah. um, which is, so now, now what about the, the pH of the colon? Because I've seen, you know, by altering the pH, it, it may be one of the most effective ways of significantly improving the microbiome. So, for example, like I've I've treated many patients with C. difficile successfully just by altering the microbiome, not with a particular bacteria, but by changing the colonic pH with apple cider vinegar and increasing like butyrate production and um, and certain certain types of probiotics like uh, ruteri and uh, Saccharomyces boulardii. And so, what are, what are your thoughts about that? About um, you know really changing the pH. One of the big mistakes we've made uh, with the introduction of acid-reducing drugs, particularly you know proton pump inhibitors, is that the acid gradient where colonic bacteria actually are kept in the colon because as a general rule they don't particularly like acid and they 
you know, stay away from, if you will, brackish water. And normally the, the colon, the stomach acidity is slowly buffered on its way down the intestinal tract from pancreas and bile. But when we block acid production, uh, you no longer have an acid gradient and colonic bacteria can come up into the small bowel where they have no business. We don't have a defense mechanism against them in our small bowel. And, you know, we see this, you know, epidemic of SIBO now that nobody ever had before. And a lot of it, you know, we have to lay at the feet of, you know, Nexium and Prilosec. And Even people who have never been on, on that, we, we see an epidemic of SIBO. So how is it, do you think it's because of um, decreased hydrochloric acid production? And if so, what could you do about it? Yeah, and I, I have a lot of my patients take a betaine or TMG, which is often, often called betaine. And, you know, I'll, I'll give them a couple of grams, four grams a day just to, just to do that. And, yes, you do see an effect. To raise, to raise HCL. Correct. Not, not to take hydrochloric acid no. by itself? No, I, I haven't seen a need to, quite frankly. Right, but you're know, saying betaine and, and TMG will it, it restore enough acid production. Yeah. I mean, Swedish bitters could be, could be helpful yeah, too, apple cider, uh, for yeah, some people. Yeah, that may. Apple you know, cider vinegar. Yeah, and it, interestingly enough, there's a, a paper in cows that apple cider vinegar is one of the best ways to uh, detoxify glyphosate. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, very interesting. Well, this was great. This is great. Um, we'll have to do it again <clears throat> to get more information in. This is really wonderful. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's always good to talk with uh, yeah. a like-minded colleague, and we're all in this together. And let's uh, let's build some good gut bugs. What oh, do you say? Okay, Dr. Gundry, thank you so much for for being so informative and being on the show, being on this podcast. It's wonderful. How do people find find you and find out more about your work? Uh, they can go to drgundry.com. I have uh, two YouTube channels. I have a podcast, the Dr. Gundry Podcast. Uh, and you can also uh, visit my gundrymd.com website. And all will get you to the right place. Well, you're certainly the expert in foods and, and how it can really improve our, our microbiome and our overall health. I really appreciate you know, being on here with me. And again, thank you for having me. It's really you know, fun and enjoyable to talk with a like-minded colleague. And you know, let's, go out and yes. let's go out and get some good gut bugs going, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, thank you again. <laughs> Thanks very much. For more information on today's topic, as well as links to all of the books mentioned, please visit kelmancenter.com slash podcast. For more information on Dr. Kelman and the Kelman Wellness Center, please visit kelmancenter.com.